Good morning. It's a pleasure to be in Tullahoma again. I know you're uh, looking to open your church school again, and that is exciting for us because, um, you know, our, our uh, two of our three children attended uh, the church school here, uh, graduated from eighth grade. And so um, Christian education has a special place in our hearts. Uh, my dad was a teacher for close to 50 years in the Adventist education system. And so uh, we've seen and, and uh, been witness to a lot of individuals who have been through our schools. Um, and they point back to that experience as the reason why they are um, close to the Lord and why they're still members of our church. So I applaud your efforts, and um, I, I would implore you to move forward. I don't get a vote, so that I have to say what I can say now. So I'm going to have a quick word of prayer before we begin. Just please remain seated, and I'll have prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're here this morning because this is where you are. And we come to spend time with you, to learn more of your will for us, to understand you better and to gain um, just this experience of being with you. Lord, guide us this morning. Help my words to be the words you would have spoken. Help me not to conjure up something that I think is important, but to rely on you for guidance. In your name I pray. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 118, is a scripture that I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with. Um, we've all had those times, uh, those times when things aren't going quite the way they should. Uh, those times when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, you know, you're not on track. And you should be on track. Those times when we've failed to heed the counsel of Scripture and the inspired writings. Those times when our righteousness is as filthy rags. And we've probably wondered, did I go too far? Have I passed beyond that point of no return? Now, it dawns on me as I'm standing here before you that I may be the only one who's had that experience. And that would be a wonderful thing. Okay? Um, but if you've had this experience, or if you know someone who has had this experience, maybe this morning's message will be helpful. But during those times those times when things seem to be at their darkest, <laughs> that Isaiah 118 will flash across our minds and bring us comfort. And it should. The idea of being made right with God is something that should be near and dear to our hearts, something we treasure above all else. Where else can we turn for comfort? Where else can we turn when things are at their worst except to the word of God for comfort and encouragement? I had made the commitment some time ago to read through Isaiah. 
And I got stuck in Isaiah 1. And I began asking myself, how did it come to this? Because in reading the first few chapters, or the first few verses of Isaiah, rather, it, it was as if, you know, if you were trying to write a roadmap for how to do it wrong, this would be your blueprint. So I want to take a few moments this morning to put Isaiah 118 into context. Needless to say, uh, the first chapter, or the first, the whole chapter of Isaiah 1 uh, does not paint a very flattering picture of God's people. After a brief introduction as to the source of his recording, Isaiah begins by detailing the failings of this nation. So we're going to look at a few things that he mentions here. I'm going to do a quick flash through the first 15 verses. I'd encourage you to look through this more thoroughly. It is worth reading. And we may find ourselves in Isaiah 1. But I'm confident that we can more fully appreciate what it is that God is offering to do for Jerusalem and Judea and by association for us if we understand the context of this offer that's being made here in verse 18. So if you have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, I'm in Isaiah 1. I'm going to look at several verses. I'm going to begin by looking at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord hath spoke. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. Now, if you've raised children, we've raised three. You know all about the late night feedings. The diaper changes, the expenses, the challenges of dealing with adolescents and teenagers and young people. The Israelites have been brought up out of Egypt by God. They have been made the special point of his attention. From feeding them, from freeing them rather from captivity in Egypt to providing manna in the desert, to clearing the way in the promised land, God provided. And after all that God had done, his children rebel against him. Now, if you've experienced this with your own children, my heart aches for you. Imagine how God feels. Trying to deal with an entire nation that's in rebellion. And not just hidden rebellion, but open Rebellion. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. The nation of Judah is saturated with sin. Not only are they sinners, but they are corruptors as well. The people that were to be a light to the world are not only evil, but by their behavior, their actions, and their influence, they are spreading evil to others. God has been provoked to anger. 
verses 5 and 6. Why should you be stricken any more? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. It's a pretty graphic description. Now, I'm no medical professional, but this doesn't sound good. Um, the entire organiza- uh, organism rather, is spiritually rotten. And this provides a visual description of how God sees those who refuse his leading. Those who insist on their own way, electing to live in sin rather than seek a savior. And so because of this conscious decision, the sacrificial system instituted to remind man of the results and consequences of sin is meaningless. And so in verse 11, God says through Isaiah, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. The sacrificial system, which was rich with meaning and symbolism, was being viewed by God's chosen people as merely a means of exchanging currency for sin. It was as if a method for approving or sanctioning sin had been invented. Do this, get out of jail free. There was no remorse, no repentance, no change in behavior. Just an endless parade of sacrifice. God is fed up. And in verse 15, God says, When you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. God has had enough. Israel and Judah have made him so mad he can't even look at him. Have you ever had that experience with your own children? Just go away. He will not hear their prayers. Now, it's obvious the Lord is speaking here to a stubborn and rebellious people. A people who thought they were advanced spiritually. Not because of their individual personal relationships with the Lord, but because of other things. External things. Offerings and incense. National history. Lineage. And so the Lord, who still loves his people and is concerned for their welfare resolves to either bring them to himself or leave them without excuse for their actions. Despite the perception the Israelites had that their ceremonies and sacrifices were a sign of reformation and repentance, God says they are nothing more than an abomination. So this is the context in which we come to our scripture this morning. Things are bad. And not just a little bad, but really, really bad. An accurate depiction of the state of affairs in Judah and Jerusalem has been provided as a permanent record in Scripture. Just as God has memorialized the condition of our spiritual predecessors for our benefit and for the judgment, he records our actions and our motives today. 
When we rebel against God by our actions or in our hearts, when we fail to do what we know to be right, a permanent record is being made. And it is in this context that we arrive at Isaiah verse 16, where God provides a remedy for the condition of his people. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil doings of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. God's people must wash themselves from sin by repenting of it and turning again to God. They must put away not only the evil that man can see by refraining from the gross acts of sin, but they must turn away from the evil that man cannot see. The evil which is only visible to God's eyes, the roots and habits of sin that are in their hearts, they must cease to do evil. This is the work of repentance. It could be said that the Israelites were either in outright rebellion or they could have been unaware of their condition, and that may have been the case with some, or they simply didn't care. And the same could be said of us. None of the three are acceptable. And so, once again, God calls his people to repentance. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 17, they are told, Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. It is not enough that they simply repent and cease to do evil, but they must also do good. Because it is not possible to cease to do evil and then stand idle. God's people must be doing good. Just as in the days of Isaiah, we must be doing good. The good that is pleasing to God, done in a right manner and with the right intent. And intent matters. There were specific areas that God pointed out, areas that they had been particularly deficient in. Seek to know what is right. Those that you have oppressed, ease them of their burdens. Avenge those that are prone to suffer wrong in society. Of particular interest should be those that are generally neglected by society. God is encouraging his people here to speak up for those that are unable to speak for themselves, to provide for those unable to provide for themselves. The fatherless and the widows are specifically mentioned. Notice the instructions to help those who cannot provide for themselves, not those who are unwilling to provide for themselves. And there is a vast difference between these two groups, but that's a different message. God is here pointing to the need for reformation. True repentance is always followed by reformation. During the days of Noah, the inhabitants of the antediluvian world were condemned to destruction for their iniquity. Yet they had the offer of mercy. By repentance and reformation of life, they might have secured forgiveness and the protection of God in the ark. The same opportunity was given to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah through the words of the prophet Isaiah. And we today hear these words again. So in this dispensation, everyone who believes and obeys the divine word will find pardon 
and a shelter from the wrath to come. Now we come to the scripture reading this morning. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Their Hebrew word for the invitation, come, now, is halak, which means to go, to come, or to walk. Here in Isaiah 118, this word is a summons for the recipient of the message to approach God. God doesn't force the people of Jerusalem and Judea to come to him, but he strongly urges them to come to him so they can receive pardon. Well, too often the human intellect is prone to use the powers of reason to justify the behaviors that we wish to hold on to. God is asking us to reason with him, to debate the matter fairly based on biblical principle, his care for them in the past, and his love for them. God condescends to reason with us, knowing, of course, that he will be justified when he speaks because he can only speak the truth. Just as repentance is meaningless without reformation, reformation is wasted if not for forgiveness. God's methods have not changed since the days of Noah. His spirit is urging us to repentance and reform. He longs to forgive us and restore us to a right relationship with him. But we must, of our own free will, take the path he offers. And so God wants to present the principles on which he is willing to forgive their sins and bestow pardon. And he presents these in Isaiah 1.19. If ye are willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. Most people, especially parents, have a pretty firm grasp on what it means to be obedient. But what does it mean to be willing and obedient? Today's modern dictionary describes being willing as ready, eager, or prepared to do something. I prefer Webster's 1828 dictionary where the word willing is more actively described. The words determining, resolving, and desiring are used. Could it be that God is telling the Israelites that yes, obedience is required, but to be accepted, they must be resolved to follow God. They must be determined and desiring in their relationship to both know and to do his will. A mere attempt at conformity is not sufficient. I believe anybody can be good for an hour. But it's the motives that matter. While the sacrificial system was divinely appointed, the mindless offering of sacrifices was not adequate. The periodic visit to the sanctuary or church won't cut it. The Israelites and we today must be willing and obedient. It is this quality, willingness, that makes obedience acceptable and possible. It is by being willing and obedient that we are able to fulfill the Great Commission to take this message to the whole world. Listen to this quote from Ellen White. There are men who will heed the word of the Lord in spite of all opposition. 
difficulties cannot turn them aside from the straight path of rectitude. God will give to men of humility a knowledge of his truth and make them to understand their duty. Such men will act under God and their labors will result in the conversion of many souls. Those who are willing and obedient, God will fit for his work. Now, all my Christian life, the importance of obedience has been emphasized and maybe overemphasized at times. Illustrations from Scripture of what happens to the disobedient were used to reinforce the importance, no, the, the necessity of obedience. I lost my part. Place. Obedience is necessary. I don't want to make it sound like obedience isn't necessary. It is necessary. But it is the element of willingness, the desire to know God, and the determination, the resolve, the desire to follow Him that helps us understand what true obedience is. God created us as free moral agents, giving us the ability to choose to follow him or not to follow him. But choosing only to obey is a rough road to hoe. Without willingness, obedience will look like a list of rules, a checklist, if you will, for heaven, a checklist that will we'll, we'll never get checked off. Because we don't want to. Religion will appear as an obligation. If we see the Lord, if we see his love, and understand what he has done for us, and is wanting to do with us, and what he is willing to do through us, we will be willing. Just as God through Isaiah was calling his people to put away evil habits and practices, he is calling on us to repent of the evil in our lives. The work of being willing and obedient must take place. It is not something we naturally gravitate to. We as humans continue to strive for control. We want to be in charge. We want what we want. And we're not good with things like patience and surrender and humility. But God expects us, just as he expected his people in Isaiah's day, to be a people whose characters are whiter than snow. Can we do this? Not on our own, but yes, with God's help, we can. But we must make a conscious decision to do this. We must surrender. We must be willing now, if I made a call this morning at the end of the service, virtually everyone would stand. And, and, and that happens because we're in an Adventist church and it's what we do. When someone makes a call, we stand. That's the easy part. Okay? That, that's, that's the easy part of being an Adventist. The hard part is the day-to-day, the moment-by-moment surrender. The recognition... that God has everything to offer me and that I have very little 
other than myself to offer to God. Heaven is offered to all. But sadly, not everyone will accept it. From Acts of the Apostle, page 531, none need fail of attaining in this fear the perfection of Christian character. By the sacrifice of Christ, provision has been made for the believer to receive all things that pertain to life and godliness. God calls upon us to reach the standard of perfection and places before us the example of Christ's character. In his humanity, perfected by a life of constant resistance of evil, the Savior showed that through cooperation with divinity, human beings may in this life attain to perfection of character. This is God's assurance to us that we too can obtain complete victory. I want to encourage you this morning. Let's not focus on our trials. And let's not focus on what the world has to offer. If you spend too much time listening to the news, you're you're liable to give up altogether. Um, There's so much nonsense going on. Okay? Now, Now, you can't ignore it completely. You have to look at it as a sign. You have to look at it and know that this is just another sign that the end is imminent. The end is here. This, I believe, will be the generation that sees Christ's return. So you can't ignore those things. But don't place your focus on them. Our responsibility in this great controversy is to put our trust and our faith in Christ and let him handle those things that are beyond our control. To be good witnesses, to help others with the aid of the Holy Spirit, to prepare for heaven and to prepare our own characters for heaven. We are on the doorstep of Christ's return. This has to be our focus. And this should be the topic of our conversation. It's easy after we leave church. We get home to start a whole other line of conversation about what happened during the week, what's going on in the world, the nonsense around us. Don't do that. Keep your eyes focused on Christ. Make your conversation a heavenly conversation. Ask yourself the question, what do I need to do in order for me to be both willing and obedient. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the surety of your word, for the many examples that you've given us in Scripture of your love for us, of your care, the provisions that you have made for our well-being and our safety, for your ability to take care of us in these last days. Lord, help us to lean on you. Help us to set these obstacles and these challenges and these problems aside and keep our eyes focused on you. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us together this morning. 
Please be with us as we go through this week, as we witness to others, as we have the opportunity to share you and your love for us. In your name we pray. Amen.